in the economy and those related kinds of topics here on money management and we're going to be looking at uh, those items plus uh, some of the economic reports that came out this week along with some comments on what's going on with inflation and those kinds of things there which I hope you'll find to be a benefit so to begin as we like to do how'd we end the week well not bad uh, the Dow ended at 35,515, the S&P at 4468, the Nasdaq was at 14,822, the uh, Russell 2000 at 2222, gold settled at 1772 an ounce, silver was at 2374 an ounce, crude closed at 6897, the 10-year was last bid at 1.29% and soft white wheat jumped up again. It's at 9.92 a bushel, you know a lot of people say, "What do you tell? What do you give soft white wheat quotes in the morning?" Well, <laughs> all I gotta say is drive around the area. Uh, here, here's the first, the real deal. Soft white wheat is primarily grown in Idaho, Oregon, and Washington, and it is used to make flour for bakery products other than bread. So cakes, crackers, cookies, pastries muffins, snack foods, in other words, the basic food groups. And it also provides a whiter and brighter product for Asian-style noodles, making it a favorite for China. And I believe that those folks have been buying just a bunch of our wheat lately. So in any regard, that's why we talk about soft white wheat. There's a lot of folks out there whose entire living depends upon that. Now, as far as the markets were concerned, the more traditional stock markets, we did have a series of new highs made in both the Dow and the S&P this uh, week, including yesterday. And yet, you know, we're in the middle of a messy market environment in the middle of August, and that's pretty typical for this time of year. Some stocks have been going up, which is why you're seeing the averages uh, setting new highs. It's been mostly focused on the big names, but most haven't really been doing much. Uh, we're starting to get a slight pickup in the new highs, but we're certainly not seeing any expansion in the new lows, so that's a good thing. Now, it's been almost a year. It was August 18th, as a matter of fact, so this coming up week. Since the S&P first made its new post uh, uh, lockdown uh, all-time high. Since then, <laughs> we've made 67 new all-time highs, including yesterday. So that's about one every four days, which is uh, roughly every other update. But in any case, it's really been a pretty calm market. The S&P has not experienced a 5% drop since November. Matter of fact, there hasn't been even been a 3% drop in two months. Uh, one, you know, I tell you this because, one, you remind you how really fortunate we've been in how the markets have done. And the second, perhaps uh, equally important, uh, these times won't last forever. So uh, just kind of keep that in mind. And we have finally hit the end of the second quarter earnings season. Uh, now, this coming up week, we're going to get a few economic reports, which are uh, of interest. Retail sales, uh, so that 
equates with consumer spending. Uh, we'll get a report on industrial production. We'll hear from the Fed meeting what, their, what they talked about at their last meeting, and then we'll get the jobless claims report. You know, one thing I found is that, um, again, we just ended the second quarter earnings season. Well, a lot of folks assume that uh, the earnings results must be significant to the stocks on the day that they make their announcement. Well, actually, that's not usually true. Any real effect is pretty much temporary and usually sentiment-related. Uh, stocks just aren't that really nearsighted. In fact, what stocks do as a entity is look out about 3 to 30 months ahead. They price in expected events. So that great second quarter earnings growth was certainly uh, not a secret. Uh, one of the most widely expected events uh, in market memory. Uh, and then w that was due basically because of the big comparisons. I mean, we, you know, we were out of business a year ago and we're doing great business this year. So the numbers look especially good. And of course, the market and the stocks in it saw it coming from a long way off and already priced it into it probably even before the quarter started. So that's likely why you saw little to no response in the um, once they did make the actual news report. So uh, just segueing over into some of these economic reports that came out this week, I have to make one aside that makes no sense to me. Uh, the administration uh, called on OPEC and its oil-producing allies to boost their production in an effort to combat climbing gasoline prices. And the overt reason was is because inflation could derail the economic recovery. Well, if we hadn't shut down a lot of our own local type uh, energy producing uh, entities, we probably wouldn't have to talk to those people. But this is not the purview of that uh, this program, so I'll just just keep on going. So anyhow, Real estate, median sales price for single-family existing homes was higher in the second quarter this year than a year ago, and this is pretty interesting, for 182 of the 183 areas that are tracked by the National Association of Realtors. I think the one that didn't quite make the, t the uh, team was uh, Springfield, Illinois. I, that just sticks in my head. So the median single-family existing home sales price rose just about 23% in the second quarter from a year ago. It's now $357,900. That's a record going back to 1968, according to the realtors. You know, prices have gone up so much, they're outweighing the benefit of these low borrowing costs. Um, and again, this according to the realtors, they said that in the second quarter, the typical monthly mortgage payment for a single-family home rose to $1,215 a month. That was up from $1,019 a year earlier. And this is even in the face of, again, lower interest rates. And perhaps not surprisingly, Fannie Mae did a survey in July and said that only about 28% of the folks they talked with thought it was a good time to buy a home. That a record low going back into uh, 2010. Once again, you know, folks, you can't pull the wool over their eyes. I mean, they see the numbers. They see what's going on. But here's some, uh, I don't know if relief is a good term, but perhaps the trend is changing. 
Construction began on 563,000 plus homes in uh, the first half of this year. That's the largest six-month total in the U.S. since the first half of 2007. Now that's according to the Census Bureau. So we are building the homes and we break through these uh, supply chain issues and get some folks working out there doing it. It'll all level out at some point. Now productivity, which is a good thing, uh, grew at 6.9% in the second quarter. Now despite the more hours worked and higher pay, the rising inflation is kind of a headwind uh, which affects the workers' purchasing power. Um, see, because what happens is, is that the uh, prices uh, have gone up more than the raises. Not, not the trend that we're looking for, as I'd like to say. And a quick note about productivity. Uh, it grew at just about 7% in the uh, second quarter. Now, uh, despite the increased working hours and higher pay, this uh, jump in inflation we've had recently does uh, kind of be a headwind in affecting workers' purchasing power. Because uh, although real compensation was down at 4.8%, that's adjusted for inflation, that doesn't mean folks are getting paid less. Wages have been rising. They haven't been able to keep up with, again, this jump in inflation. So we can, we're expecting that hours and output are going to continue to rise in the quarters ahead as the labor, for, excuse me, labor force continues to heal and we get back to work and level, at the level of output we would have seen had all these lockdowns never happened. The uh, National Federation of Independent Business reported a dip in small business optimism. I'd like to take a few minutes and uh, address some of this inflation data that's been coming out and try and give you some perspective about it all. Now, inflation did remain relatively high in July. The economy continues to rebound among the lockdown-related shortages, primarily of labor and supplies right now. And the Labor Department this last Wednesday uh, reported that the Consumer Price Index uh, rose 5.4% in July. That was from a year ago. And uh, that's the highest 12-month rate since 2008. A little cooler than its increase in June. Now, inflation does remain well below, well below the double-digit heights it reached at times from the mid-70s to the early 80s. And I can attest to that. This is nowhere near like that. At that time, interest rates were much higher, think in the teens, and they mostly moved in tandem with the inflation trends. In recent months, when consumer prices have spiked uh, and while bond yields fell, that's what's been going on. So that's totally not like that. The consumer price index as such measures what's called a market basket of consumer spending. What they do is they look at uh, what we pay for goods and services such as food from grocery stores, uh, restaurant meals, clothes, energy, vehicles, rent, car repairs, those kinds of things. And to measure them, the Census Bureau does regular household surveys and the consumer expenditure surveys, as they're known, aim to provide the public with information on a complete range of consumers' expenditures and income. There you go. So in July, only one of the 20-plus spending categories went down. That was medical care commodities, 
and that was only down 2%. Everything else rose between 8 tenths of a percent and 42%. Just for instance, some of the uh, prices changes over the past year, natural gas up 92%, gas, regular gasoline up 84%, corns up 72%, soybeans up 52%, copper 49%. These are all uh, you know, inputs that uh, go into all the kind of things we meet. Coffee, and they've had problems now in Brazil with weather and so on. It's up 49%, likely going to go higher. Sugar is up 44%. Cotton, 40%. Now, on the other side, lumber, which <laughs> kind of got this conversation started earlier in the year, is now down 4%. Platinum's down 4%. And so there are changes, but basically things are up. Now, uh, a company called Carparts, the CEO of that company named Lev Peeker, he said, higher costs for products, shipping containers, and labor will result in auto part prices rising another 5% by year end. This after they've already increased by about 5 to 7%. He added, everything is back ordered. Everything takes weeks or months. It's a very tight supply chain right now. And I think that's true in most businesses. So you have to kind of, you know, when you're ordering things, keep that in the back of your mind. Tyson Foods uh, projected higher meat costs ahead, and they seek to pass along the elevated prices they're getting hit with for animal feed, higher wages, and uh, other expenses onto restaurants and supermarkets. Now, according to their chief executive, Donnie King, he said, we've seen unprecedented and accelerating inflation, and we're trying to catch up with that, unquote. Now, again, understand that this is one of the challenges we're dealing with, is this perception. Inflation, per se, is not really, well, it is right now, but it, it will level off. And it isn't really as bad as perhaps uh, a lot of the media is portraying it because they assume that it's going to continue at these levels ad infinitum. Uh, likely not. And so there will be adjustments made likely lower, but the point I'm really trying to make here is that all of the adjustments result in higher costs that are, are passed on to us in some way, shape, or form. These supply chain issues... Uh, that that's a significant pressure on prices, and there's no end in sight on that one. From the shortage in semiconductors that slow production from cars and trucks and household appliances, difficulties finding labor to fill these uh, job openings, well, we, we our supply just hasn't kept up with the demand. The loose monetary policy is combined with high government spending, widespread supply chain problems, and excessively generous unemployment benefits to make it really difficult for suppliers to meet our demand. And while I believe these supply chain issues are temporary, and I'm not talking about a couple of weeks, but not forever, the huge increase in the money supply, uh, leaving both consumer and corporate pockets filled with cash, that's what's going to drive inflation over the longer term. Now, Brad McMillan is Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. He has an interesting point. He says, and I'm quoting, inflation has, at a minimum, paused. Uh, he goes on to say, the inflation story is more about isolated components rather than general increases in prices, and even those components are showing signs of peaking. He goes on to say, as we dig into the numbers, Inflation is above where it has been, but is showing signs of rolling over and returning to more comfortable levels, unquote. 
I, I think I pretty much agree with what Brad's saying there. Inflation doesn't have any preset market effects, so none of this is basically good or bad for stocks. Uh, it, there's always plenty of headlines, and again, you know, that's the thing you got to watch out for. These guys are trying to get your attention, and <laughs> how much meat is in the uh, topic uh, leaves a lot to be desired sometimes. But, uh, excuse me, uh, you know, they say, they, the pundits say that markets are somehow overlooking the various risks, inflation, of course, chief among them, uh, a statement that really misunderstands how efficient markets work. The markets aren't ignoring anything. They're just better at analyzing data than most any pundits seem to be. And you know, here, producer prices, which is uh, the inflation at the manufacturer's level, they continue to go up in July. They're at the second fastly, fastly, sorry, second fastest monthly jump uh, in more than 10 years. And after, over the past 12 months, prices are up a record 7.8%, which is... Uh, isn't saying much because the previous record was set in June. So, again, they're up. But while for years the, after the financial crisis in 08, the question from many was whether the Fed could induce 2% inflation. Now that story has changed. Will they be able to get it back down to 2%? And we'll be hearing from the Fed this next week, so make it some insights then. But the Fed seems to anticipate inflation will drop this year and into 2022, but I think any reduction in the rate is going to be temporary, and the increase in the money supply is continuing to gain traction. You know, there's more, all kind, there's trillions of dollars literally sitting on the sideline, and it's going to go somewhere at some point. Uh, you know, stripping out the food and energy components, you see core inflation up 1% in July, up 6.2% in the past year. So that's definitely well above the 2% target, no matter how you cut it. But I don't think you're going to be seeing the Fed making any change in plans to short-term rates, keeping short-term rates near zero for the foreseeable. They wanted to trend above the 2% target, while the labor market, which is also what they're charged with managing, has to get considerably better for the Fed to consider a move higher. That's the way it looks from here. So, um, I really don't have time to get into this next thing, but after the break, I'm going to talk about gold as an inflation hedge, or is it? And then we'll be talking about fixed income challenges right now and the outlook for the markets from some folks around the country. Uh, I want to make just a few words on uh, this uh, perception that gold is an inflation edge. Well, kind of to put this in a little bit of context, this coming up week on August 15th, and I know you've already got it marked on your calendar, that will be the 50th anniversary, anniversary of Mr. Nixon severing any link between the U.S. dollar and gold. What he did in 71 was ditch the gold standard, boosted tariffs, and announced a 90-day freeze on wages and prices. And ever since then, we've been in a world of free-floating currencies. Uh, so what is that, 50 years-ish? So you, gold had a fixed price all the way up in, in the U.S. anyway, and had a fixed price of $35 an ounce. Didn't matter what the economy was doing, nothing else. It was always $35 an ounce. 
and what they call the Dow-Gold ratio was at 24 at that time. In less than eight years after he uh, cut the standard, the ratio dropped to one as gold jumped up to about 750 an ounce, and that was not inflation adjusted. Now, last Monday, this past week, the Dow passed 20 times the, pa the price for an ounce of gold, and bullion had fallen more than $60 in just a few minutes before it cut its losses on Monday. It closed more at a four-month low, traders worrying that the strong jobs growth could lead to the Fed scaling back its massive monetary stimulus, which would drive interest rates higher, which, as I've said in previous programs, is that it's like pouring water on the Wicked Witch of wherever she was from. Sorry, I don't have the directions right. The weakness in gold really stands out. Nobody wants the rocks. Gold has been the worst trade since last summer. Almost everything else has been going up in price except for gold. Matter of fact, relative to the NASDAQ, the uh, gold ETF, which is GLD, it went out at new all-time lows. Relative to the S&P 500, it's making new 16-year lows, and UBS Global Wealth Management predicts that gold could see drops down to $1,600 an ounce or lower um, in the relatively near term. And it's about 1777, 1772 this uh, yesterday's uh, last trade. So, is gold a good hedge against inflation? Well, not according to the data, because if gold were a good and consistent hedge, the ratio of its price to the consumer price index would have been relatively steady over the years, but nay, nay, that has not been the case. Over the past 50 years, gold's real, that's inflation-adjusted price, has fluctuated no less than any other asset over the time frames that make most sense to investors, and that's according to Mark Halbert, who writes a uh, rather uh, lengthy newsletter and has been doing so for a number of years, not just on gold. But, I, you know, I get asked my opinion on gold, and if you've listened to me more than once, you know I'm not a fan. The price of the gold tends to move in dramatic spikes. I'd rather have something that's productive with steady revenue streams. See, because gold pays nothing. I mean, no dividends, no interest. The only way you make money is you buy low and sell high. <laughs> Operative term being selling. So... I'd rather, you know, it's still adjusted for inflation, gold, never having hit its high price from the 70s. You adjusted for inflation, uh, that 750 is around $2,400, $2,500 an ounce. It's never even come remote. Well, it came within $300 of it uh, whenever gold was doing whatever it was doing recently. But it's still, I mean, 1971 to now, or actually it wasn't 71, it was more like the mid-70s when it hit 750, but... So 50 years, it's never hit its high price again. Doesn't seem to me. So when real yields, interest rates go up, gold prices go down and vice versa. So in such a situation, the opportunity cost of holding gold, which is, as I said, a non-yielding asset, moves higher because investors are giving up interest that would be otherwise earned in assets that provide such things. Now... This is kind of a backhanded segue into the fixed income because it's affected by inflation rather significantly, as I'm sure many of you have found out to your chagrin. 
this combination of high inflation, strong economic growth, and very low his, uh, interest rates has meant that, again, the real rates, what you can earn on your money after factoring in inflation, are lower than they've been pretty much in any time in modern times. This is a result of a glut of global savings along with the Fed's extraordinary efforts to bring the economy back to hell. It also means the choice for a saver is basically between two options. You can invest in safe assets, quote unquote, and accept the high likelihood you'll get back less in terms of real purchasing power than you put in. See, safe assets, a lot of folks consider bonds, uh, CDs, government bonds, that kind of stuff. Well, in today's world with inflation such as it is, even at 3% or 2%, um, <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you're setting fire to your purchasing power out in the future. You'll be lucky if you can keep up. I mean, that's just math. That's not saber rattling. You know, the, al the alternative is you can invest in risky assets where you have a shot at a positive return, but you've got risk of losing money should the market sentiment and whatever you put your money in turn negative. Sonal Desai, Chief Investment Officer at Franklin Templeton Fixed Income, had this to say, risk-averse people have to get used to the worst of all possible worlds, which is watching their pool of capital go down in real spending times year after year. Yep. You know, inflation be, being uh, ahead of interest rates is good news in certain circumstances. That is, if you're able to borrow money at a fixed rate, like a mortgage, uh, and use it to make an investment that will provide something of value over time. Again, like a house, farmland, business equipment. Well, what if you're not in that position? Okay. Instead, you're saving money that you, you need five years down the road for whatever. Well, you could keep the money in cash, such as uh, through a bank deposit or money market fund. Short-term interest rates are zero, basically, uh, very close to it, depending upon where you park your money. The Fed expects to keep their rates quite low for at least another couple of years, at least that's their story currently, and inflation averaging now about 4 to 5% over the past year, and many forecasters, as we're saying, expect it to come out slowly. Now, Current rates, and this is no kidding, savings accounts average about six one-hundredths of a percent. Now, that's for a whole year. A one-year CD will get you 0.14%. A two-year CD, watch out, 0.17%. Can you imagine tying up your money on purpose for two years to earn 17, well, 17 basis points, which is 17 one-hundredths of a percent? You are so far upside down on that, it it makes your head hurt. Now, it is possible to earn money on your savings elsewhere, but even a quote-unquote high-yield online account is only paying 0.5%. So, you know, they're all tied to the primary interest rate, so it's not like you can get 12% from Charlie and only 2% from this guy over here. No, they're all running off the same book. And if you don't want to take more risk with your capital, there really don't have many options. Um, excuse me. You know, it, it's someone who buys bonds with ultra low yields and collecting microscopic interest in exchange for taking the substantial risk that higher inflation or a sur surge in interest rates 
could more than wipe out even small gains because, again, when interest rates rise, existing bonds fall in value. Rick Ryder, Chief Investment Officer at BlackRock, he says that investors focus on the medium term and build a portfolio that combines stocks, which offer upside from rising corporate earnings with cash, which offers safety. Now, uh, okay, uh, that's not a bad combination, uh, depending upon what kinds of stocks you're talking about. But uh, as I said earlier, we've accumulated trillions in extra uh, savings during all this carry-on, and money's in all sorts of investments, which has helped to push asset prices upward and expected returns lower. Um, you know, with interest rates so low, uh, it's like, Jabers, has it always been like this? Uh, no. Um, from 1960 to 2007, the three-month treasury, the 90-day T-bill, if you will, uh, is a pretty good you know, kind of proxy for a, a savings account. That earned an average of 5.5% a year. Yep, 5.5% from all that period of time. Now that after if you take inflation away, uh, the real return drops to 1.3 percent over that 48 years. So it's still not a way to make money, but uh, and it's certainly not a way to uh, grow an asset significantly because if you have any increase in inflation and or need for cash flow, you've got no growth uh, to be able to count on from the bonds. Now. Let me talk about earnings growth. You know, a couple of these analysts we heard from um, are suggesting that earnings are slowing down, they're at their peak, um, they won't be able to keep up. Uh, they probably, I would say absolutely, they aren't going to be able to likely hit the same relative percentage jumps that they've seen in this quarter. That's not the point. It's how do the uh, earnings compare with the quarter a year ago and are they going up? And earnings growth has been so strong this year. Now, this is one of those believe it or not deals. The price to earnings ratio on the S&P 500 itself has actually dropped. Even with the stocks up around 20%, that's because the earnings growth has outpaced the market growth. And there's a good reason for this. The market rising because the fundamentals are improving. Please remember that. The earnings have come just storming back after that uh, mini-recession we endured. J.P. Morgan did some good work. They uh, broke out valuations and earnings by the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500. Those top 10 all by themselves uh, represent about 30% of the entire market value of the S&P. Some names you may have heard of, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, that clump of companies is now collectively worth more than $9 trillion. For comparison, in 2012, when Facebook first went public, those stocks together were worth $1.1 trillion. So, I'm a math guy. Nine is more than 1.1, so that's good. You know, this may sound scary, but... You have to realize, too, that they contributed 34% of the earnings over the past year. So they're huge for a reason. And they're also expensive for a reason. You can see that once you take away these top 10 holdings, the valuation of the other 490, they, well, they don't all look that bad, do they? So, you know, compare apples and apples. You can't compare 
a small cap company with Microsoft and say, oh, this guy is not any good at all. No, it doesn't work like that. The median S&P 500 PE ratio is now higher than it was in the tech bubble. Oh, no, don't be grabbing your heart. It's not like that. There's a wide range between the top and bottom quintile of stocks. The problem for a lot of investors is that many of those stocks have low expectations are cheap for good reason. And most of the stocks that have high valuations are expensive for a good reason. So you just have to decide which way you want to go. I'm not trying to say stocks are cheap or they're not expensive, but with interest rates so low and the markets at all time highs, I'd almost be more worried if the stock market wasn't expensive. You know, the less you think about your portfolio, the less you actually put your hands in it and move around it, no matter how much money you have, the better off you're going to be. That has been proven by studies. Because you look at it and say, oh, I must do something because the stock is moving up or down. Now, just sit on your hands, have a bonbon, watch TV. So, in conclusion, so to speak, gross profit margins are at 32.6% for the S&P 500 right now and 297 for the MSCI World Index. These do not predict stock returns, but they do show companies have a lot of room to maneuver to absorb higher costs and slowing demand while still remaining quite profitable. That's a pretty good reason to be optimistic. I also think a reason to be optimistic is about gross stocks is that they usually have the biggest gross margins and are better positioned to weather slow growth stretches. And when markets anticipate slower growth, they tend to reward the companies that don't depend on the acceleration of the economy to do well. See, growth stocks tend to capitalize on long-term trends, not cycles. Their, their gross margins are a nice cushion against these hiccups, whether from the bug or supply shortages, rising raw materials costs, or whatever other kind of short-term short -term speed bumps real or imagined get thrown in our way. But not coincidentally, they've led the market by a mile since mid-May and cumulatively since the bull market began back in March 2000. That's about it for the high-powered market news. I do have something from the Census Bureau that came out this week that may be of passing interest. Uh, because of the way people have moved over the last 10 years, Texas is gaining two House seats and five other states will gain one each. Colorado, Florida, Montana, North Carolina, and Oregon. Seven, however, will lose one. California, Illinois, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. They will also, these states, lose or gain votes in the Electoral College beginning in the 2024 presidential election. And it, it, <laughs> the uh, Phoenix saw the biggest percentage grain in growth during the decade of the 10 largest cities. Its population grew by 11.2%. Well, I hope you have a great week. Uh, we will not be here next Saturday. We have corporate carryings on to, that we have to do, uh, but we will be here uh, mostly during the week and certainly in uh, two weeks from Saturday. So thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. This is Mike Mail. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you're listening to Money Management.
Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.